Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Church of God, this is the word of God. Amen, church. Please go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everyone. I've got one thing to say about this morning. Burr. So glad to see everyone here this morning. We're going to be continuing in our short series entitled Marriage, Family, and Singleness. And last week we talked about marriage. Today we're going to talk about family. Lots of families in this church this morning. Praise God for that. And well, as I told you last week, you know, why would we want to talk about these topics? I told you last week, these topics are foundational to our lives. For one thing, like we talked about last week, we're either married or single. There's no in between. And for two, we all have come from a family. I've never met anyone who just popped out of the air. If that's you this morning, come talk to me. I got some questions. But we all have come from a family, and many of us have families of our own. Now, those families are varied. They're highly varied. We've all come from different backgrounds, from different walks of life. We have differences in how we were raised. And all our families look differently. And some have the typical nuclear family with a mother, a father, and children. Some are single-parent homes. Some of us are empty nesters. Some of us have a house that's full of kids, an extended family, four dogs, three cats, two squirrels, and a partridge and a pear tree. Life's busy. But one thing that we all have in common, our families are broken. Do you believe that? Our families are broken. We all come from different, or I said that already, our families are broken. We're sinful people. We're broken people. And from sinful, broken people come sinful, broken marriages and families. Now, this brokenness, it can manifest itself in small ways, and some of you have been hurt in small ways, and you've even brought those hurts into your family, 
But you know, this brokenness can also be manifested in major ways. Some of you have been deeply, massively hurt by your family, and some of you have brought that deep, massive hurt into families and have caused deep, massive hurt in others. So what better place to talk about broken, sinful families than in the church? A place where the answer to brokenness, the answer to sinfulness can be found, where brokenness can meet its maker who binds up the brokenhearted. Where sinfulness can find forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ. I want to talk about families because just like I said last week about marriage, families are foundational. We need to know what the Bible says about family. We need to know how the Bible addresses family and how we as believers can instill discipleship in our spouses and our children and our grandchildren and more. So one final thought before we get into this. I said this last week, but again, this bears repeating. I don't stand up here and preach about this because I've been the perfect son or the perfect father. I have failed at both in major ways. I struggle daily to be the father that I need to be. And I stand up here and I preach, and the only reason I can preach this this morning is not from my authority, but from the authority that comes from God's word. So let's dive into God's word and see what he has to say about our family. Just like last week, I want to give you three points this morning on the family. We'll be following the same format as last week. I've got three questions I want to address. What is the family? Why does God want families? And how do we do this thing called family? What is the family? Why does God want families? And how do we do this thing called family? So that's where we're going. If you're ready, say go. All right. First, what is family? Here's your first point this morning from the text. The family created and established by God consists of a husband and wife and any dependents. The family created and established by God consists of a husband and wife and any dependents. James Dobson, in his book, Children at Risk, defined family like this. A family is defined as a group of individuals who are related to one another by marriage, birth, or adoption. Nothing more, nothing less. And I like this definition. The basic family unit of the family is the husband and wife. That's scriptural. In fact, we saw that last week, Genesis 2, 20 through 24. We saw the creation of woman, and we saw the creation of marriage. And we talked about that. That's the basic family unit, and that family can be built on through having children or adopting children. Now, here's our passage for that this morning in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you catch that? Male and female, he created them. God created man. God created woman and put them together into a family unit. Then the verse goes on to say in verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The family began as one husband, one wife, and it, but it was never meant to remain just a husband and wife. God wanted the man and woman to reproduce and fill the earth. That was part of the reason for marriage. So there's our definition. Now, of course, 
There is such a thing as extended family. You know this. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, all of that. But the basic family unit should be defined as husband, wife, and any children. And there's biblical reason for this. We saw that last week. We saw about the leaving and the cleaving and becoming one. You remember me talking about that? Husbands and wives leave their families of origin. They get married. They cleave to one another. They become one. That's the biblical basis for the family unit. But there's also cultural relevance for this. We need, believe it or not, we need a definition of family. We need this in our day and age because the family is under attack. Just like marriage is under attack, the family is under attack. In March of 2020, David Brooks, who's a writer for The Atlantic Magazine, he wrote an article entitled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And if you're not familiar with that term, nuclear family, that's just the simple basic family we've been talking about, the father, the mother, and the children. But in that article, Brooks argues that a better model for family is the extended kin network, that you should all just be connected. Or he even talked about a non-biological kin, that we should just have family-like relationships. But he made an argument that the nuclear family was a mistake. Now, I want to point out that, you know, Extended family networks and non-biological kin, those things aren't bad, but they should not replace God's model for the family. We get that from the verses we just talked about for Genesis 2.24 where it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The family created and established by God consists of a husband and wife and any dependents. Notice, just like marriage, family is something God created. It's something that God established. It was instituted by God. You know, in Psalm 127, Solomon writes this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Family is a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. So what do we do with all this information? Get on board with God's definition of family. Get on board with God's definition of family. What does this mean? It means that you, parent, are meant to raise your children. You, parent, are meant to raise your children, not society, not the church, not your extended family, you. Now, I understand those things do play their part. Schools help to educate. Churches are meant to enrich parents by explaining the gospel and discipling the children, absolutely. The extended family does help shape and mold children and adults, absolutely. Each one of those things plays their part. But don't shirk your responsibility as a parent. God's plan is for the child to be raised by their parents. Now, I know there are exceptions. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes a single parent has to step it up on their own. Sometimes children are bereft of their biological parents, and someone has to step in to fill those roles. I get that. In fact, that's true of my family. You all know that every one of our four kids is adopted. Praise God. But the point is this. Parents do not turn to outside sources to primarily raise their children. Even the church. The church is vital, yes. But God wants you 
to raise your children. Now, let me just say this. If your children are grown, if they've left home, your primary job of raising them is done, yes, but that does not mean that you are no longer influential. This does not mean the relationship does not continue. It should continue. But it means the relationship changes. It means you respect your children's choices. It means you love them from a distance sometimes. It means you help them when they come calling, those kinds of things. But it's different now. And let me say this, though. If your children are grown and gone, and if they've abandoned the instruction and they've forsaken what you taught them about God, I can't imagine how painful that is. Let me say it up front. But let me encourage you, don't despair. There is still hope. God can and does use the seeds that you planted and seeds from others. Don't give up on being influential to your children and never give up praying for them. If you're single or if you're married and don't have children, then let me encourage you that even you should cling to God's definition of family. Don't be swayed by the world's ideas of what a family should look like or how a family should function. God created family. His plans are best. And let me add something to this. I'm going to give you a sneak peek into next week's sermon on singleness, okay? Anyone in here who doesn't have a family of their own, your heart may long for that, and that's completely understandable, but take note of something the Bible says in Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. It says this, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Hold fast to the Lord. Whatever your stage of life, wherever you are in life, God has a future for you, a future that he declares is better than sons and daughters. Hold to that promise. The family created and established by God consists of a husband and wife and any dependents. Here's point number two. Why does God want families? Why did he do this thing called family? God created families to fill and stabilize the earth and to pass along his truth. God created families to fill and stabilize the earth and to pass along his truth. Verse 28 of Genesis 1, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Filling the earth, that's pretty simple. God put families together to reproduce so that the human race grows and continues and flourishes. We get that. That's not hard to understand. We don't have a problem with that. But why did God do it through family? Why was that his plan? Couldn't God have simply said, just procreate? Doesn't matter how, doesn't matter with whom, just make the human race continue. Couldn't he have just said that? Why did he orchestrate the spreading of the family through a monogamous, monog monog I'm gonna get there, monogamous one man and one woman family relationship? Why did he do it that way? Because in no other relationship does the picture of God pursuing us as his bride shine so clearly than in marriage and family? 
we see in marriage the demonstration of God's passionate pursuing love. And in families, children should grow up in an environment of love and care that mirrors God's love and care for us. That's the idea. Now, I know that it doesn't always happen that way. Like I said earlier, families are broken, but that's the idea. That's why God created the family. You know, it's interesting. In Luke chapter 2, it's the only time that we get a glimpse of Jesus as a child. And where do we see him? In the context of a family. He has an earthly mother and an earthly father, and the scripture tells us that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Where? In the context of a family. Where better to demonstrate God's love for you than in your love for your family and your, father, and your family's love for you? And that's why family is foundational, even to society. Family is foundational to society. It's an institution created by God, and it's meant to populate the earth in an atmosphere that pictures his love for us, and that is foundational even for society. Family's meant to stabilize the earth. It's meant to bring stability to our society. God created the family as a basic unit in society, and that's why when you destabilize the family, you destabilize every other institution. All societies on planet earth are made up of families, and you destabilize one, you're going to destabilize the other. And when families are broken, society's broken. In an article by Focus on the Family, Jim Daly and Paul Batua write this, Across cultures and generations, the health and vitality of the culture and our communities almost exclusively correlates with the integrity and cohesiveness of home life. As goes the family, so goes the society. It's that simple. And this raises concerns, especially when you consider the drop in number of families who support and teach a biblical worldview. According to the Barna Research Group, among American parents of children age, under age 13, only 2% have a biblical worldview. And even among self-identified born-again Christians, the number is only 8%. That is staggering. God has built the family into the fabric of life, and where that breaks down, everything else breaks down. So family is meant to fill and stabilize the earth, but also family is meant to be the avenue by which God's truth is passed down. Look at Deuteronomy 6. It reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, I've talked about this passage before. This is what the Jews call the Shema. It's the central affirmation of Judaism. Love God, love people. That's verses 4 and 5. But keep reading, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The home is the place, the main place to disciple your children. That's what that's talking about. And it even tells us when. Did you notice that? When do we do this? The scripture says, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Translation, all the time. All the time. 
at all times of the day in our houses and everywhere we go. Now, Scripture's not meant to communicate that every single word that comes out of your mouth is a Bible verse. Okay, that's not what's going on there. You don't have to respond with John 3.16 every time your kid asks for a snack. That's not what's meant to be communicated. The principle here is to be ready. Be ready at all times to instruct your kids. Be ready at the break of day because they're going to get you up at the break of day. Be ready when you're sitting in your homes. And genuinely, when is everybody sitting? Usually around a dinner table. That's a perfect time. And I know that's not always the case. Life is busy. I get that. But hopefully, I hope in your family, you have times when you have meals together where everyone is gathered. If you're not, if you don't have that at all, let me me just say right now, you're missing vital discipleship time. Be ready also when you travel. It says when they walk by the way, they walked everywhere they went. When we travel, be ready when you're all in the car together. Sometimes it's a great time. Sometimes that's when my kids will ask a very significant question. It's perfect timing. Be ready when you lie down at bedtime. And this can be honestly one of the easiest times, especially if you have little ones, because you can read a Bible story to them as you're putting them down. But the point is to be ready. And secondly, along with that, the scripture says to have scripture accessible. Look at verses 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, there's some debate as to whether God really meant the Jews to literally put scripture on their bodies and put scripture on their homes, but that's not the point. The point is have the word accessible. Have it studied and memorized so that it's literally there at the tip of your tongue. Your family, by the way, parent, your family is your number one mission field. You have a mission field. You probably have a mission field at work. You probably have a mission field in your neighborhood or some other place of public interaction. Great. Do that. Don't stop. But remember, your number one mission field is your family. The number one place where you are to be a light for the gospel. And by the way, just because your kid comes to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean the mission is done. In many ways, it's just begun. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples, not converts. If all God wanted was converts, then a ministry a mile wide and an inch deep would be fine. But we don't believe that. We believe God wants deep disciples who continually are learning about God. You should raise your kids with a view that they're going to go out into the world and one day make a life for themselves. And to do this, we tend to focus on educational development, and that's not bad, not at all. But our main concern should be with our children's spiritual development. Do your kids know what the gospel is? Do they understand the importance of following Jesus? Do they understand the importance of attending church and building healthy, building healthy relationships within the body of Christ. Do they see you model these things? I'm going to get into this a little bit more later, but more things are caught than taught. Are your kids seeing you model these things? Do they see you read the Bible? Do they see you put priority toward church and small groups, toward loving brothers and sisters in Christ? How often do you miss Sunday mornings? Or small groups, how is that affecting your children's view of the importance of church? Here's another quote from the Barna Research Group. Actually, this one is from George Bonner himself. He says this, Young children are watching their parents. 
They're listening to their parents. And they're trying to put these two things together. The problem is they're seeing a contradiction between word and deed. The conclusion we discovered that children draw is, what a shame my parents seem to be as confused as I am. So this faith that they're talking about must not have the answers. Your kids are watching you. Here's two startling realities. Your kids are watching you first. They're watching your virtues. They're watching your virtues. And here I just said this a minute ago. With virtues, lessons are better caught than taught. I heard a pastor say one time, kids would much rather see a sermon than hear one any day. What are your kids seeing you do? What are they seeing you not do? Does it conform with what you say about your faith, about God? With virtues, lessons are better caught than taught, but with vices, what you do in moderation, they'll do in excess. With vices, what you do in moderation, they'll do in excess. So if you ignore time with God, they'll ignore time with God even more. If you skive off from church and small group, they'll do it even more. If you're anxious and doubtful, don't be surprised to see that in them to a greater degree. If you put value on money and success, so will they to a greater degree. With vices, what you do in moderation, they'll do in excess. Your children are watching you. That's the way God made it, by the way. He made you as the parent responsible to pass along his truth. He wanted them to watch you to learn about him. And how does this work if your children have grown up and left home? What if you don't have your kids at home anymore? How is this supposed to work? Remember what I said a few minutes ago. The influence is still there. You are still an influence to your adult children. Whether you modeled the Christian life well when they were at home or whether you didn't, the influence is still there and it's still important. So let them see you follow Christ now with all your heart. Don't forget, it's never too late. All my kids are still home. And I know that one day that will not be the case. And I know that one day I will look back with pain in my heart for how I messed up. But God is gracious and God is good. And we never give up. And if you're single out there, you don't have kids, don't forget that it's not just parents that children look up to. Children look up to neighbors to teachers, to grandparents, to aunts, to uncles, to our wonderful Harvest Kids leaders, to the worship team leaders, to hospitality leaders. Kids look up to all kinds of people. You can be and are most likely influencing children and adults around you right now. The same is true of you then. Model the Christian life well. You know, and Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Don't forget, we are a family. The church is the family of God. It's your spiritual family, and your spiritual family is watching you. No matter who you are, in this church, your spiritual family is watching you. 
So God created families to fill and to stabilize the earth and to pass along his truth. So instruct your children, model the Christian life. And this leads to my third point, how. How do we do this thing called family? Here's your point. By pursuing the gospel, both for ourselves and for our families. By pursuing the gospel, both for ourselves and for our families. Back to Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The writer of Deuteronomy, Moses, he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Everyone see that? Your heart. That means it has to affect you first. These words, and these words, what he means up at that point was all the way up to Deuteronomy, the law, but of course, God's word extends beyond that. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just the law of Moses. It's all of Scripture. In fact, Jesus tells us, teach them all that I've commanded you. These things should be on your heart. In other words, get God's word in your heart. You can't teach what you don't know. You can't shape a life when yours has not been affected by the Lord. Attend to your heart first. Do you know what this is like? It's like the safety demonstration on airplanes. You know what I mean? When they tell you about the oxygen masks, in case of an emergency and an oxygen mask falls down, what are you supposed to do with it? Put it on yourself first. That's right. Now, that seems kind of selfish, right? Especially, you know, if I was flying with my children, my mind would be on them. I've got to get it on their children. But that's not what it's about. It's to put it on yourself first because if you don't, you might pass out and not be able to help your children. Okay, in a similar silly way, right? But in a similar way, this is true. You have to attend to your heart through God's word before you can ever hope to attend to your kid's heart. Your heart should be shaped by the word of God, by God's word, by his truth. We need to take God's word into our hearts. We need to read and study and memorize and believe it. And that's what taking something into your heart means, that in the depths of your being, you believe God's truth, and then you can pass it on to your children. Know God, know his word, love God with all you are. Let your heart be shaped, and you can instruct your children. You know that phrase, do as I say, not as I do? should never be on the lips of a parent. Never. If you live by that rule, you will fail to instruct your children because like I said, they will watch you, they will see the hypocrisy, and they won't follow what you say. The passage, Deuteronomy 6, says, teach them diligently. That Hebrew word there, diligently, literally means to repeat. And that's appropriate. Because raising kids is all about repeating yourself over and over. How many times do I have to tell you over and over, repeatedly? We can't just tell them once and it's, if only. I mean, if only you could just say it once and it was done. No, we just, it doesn't happen that way. 
You have to say things over and over. It doesn't happen with kids. By the way, that doesn't happen with adults either. If you're a boss, you know that. You have to tell people over and over again, do it this way. We teach, we repeat God's truth over and over. And by the way, going back to the whole heart thing and getting in your heart, that's how we do it. You can't just hear something once and got it, it's in my heart. Our hearts are naturally rebellious and we have to repeat God's truth over and over and over to ourselves. We have to repeat it over and over to get into our kids in order for it to take shape. And you can do this a number of ways. You can have a formal family devotion time. I encourage that. Our family does that. It's good, but it's not enough. You can and should do this through natural everyday conversation, coming back to God's truth whenever you can. You can do this through gospel-centered music that should be playing in your homes at times that kids should be listening to, even subconsciously, hearing the truths of God's words sung in your home. You should do this through conflict. We all love family conflict. We just love it. No, we don't. But you know what? God wants to use the conflict in your home as opportunities to speak his truth. Patiently, lovingly, repeatedly. This is how we get the gospel into ourselves and our families. Now, I want one more passage I want to address on this topic. And I want to ask it this way. What does a gospel-filled child look like? I'm switching now from parents to children. So listen up, children. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, what is your responsibility? To honor your father and mother through obedience. And that goes all the way back, you know this, to Exodus 20, 12. It's the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. When you're young, honoring your father and mother is simply through obeying. It's through being obedient. And let me encourage you, children out there, honor your father and mother no matter what. And if you were here last week, I talked about some hard things. I told wives to submit to their husbands. I told husbands to love their wives. Both of those are hard. They're hard things to do. What's the hard thing for children? The hard thing to do is to obey, to honor our parents. That's not easy because, again, we have that sinful nature that naturally wants to rebel. But children, you are following the Lord when you are being obedient to your parents. And again, you know, there's one exception to that, children, and that is when you're, if your parents ever tell you to sin. And I know the parents in this room, and I don't believe that would happen, but that would be the one exception. Honoring your parents is obeying. And by the way, while we're obeying, obeying with a good attitude. Sometimes that's, more hard, that's harder than just obeying. Sometimes it's easy to obey, but having the right attitude when we obey, that's incredibly hard at times. How do we do that? How do we obey with a right attitude when we really don't want to? I'm going to go back and say something I just said about, about Jesus. How do you obey when you really don't want to? You remember that your Savior obeyed his parents. You remember that he continued being submissive to his parents when he created his parents. Wrap your brain around that one. That's crazy. 
Now, I want to extend this point because we're all children in here, all of us. We all came from someone, from parents. And we all, the Bible tells us, have a responsibility to honor our parents. So how do we do that as grown children? How do I honor my parents as an adult? You know, that word for honor in the Hebrew, it's the word kabod, and it literally means to be heavy. It's where we get the word glory from. To honor parents is to treat them with weight. Not to treat them lightly, but to treat them with weight. How do we do that? Especially as we adults, how do we do this? I want to give you five ways really quick that we as adults can honor our parents. And I just want to say up front, I got these from a sermon that I listened to by Tim Keller. So number one, find the symbols of honor. This is different in every culture, what honor looks like, but find the symbols of honor in your culture. It could be the, the most honorable place at the table. It could be recognizing birthdays or other holidays, other special days. But find those symbols of honor and honor your parents. Number two, don't underestimate your parents' need to see themselves reproduced in you. They need to see that. And the way we do that is this. In other words, when you say something like, hey, I got this trait from you and that's good. That's honorable. I got this from you. I, I, I developed this from you and that was good. That's a way we honor our parents. Number three, and this is hard, but don't stereotype your parents. They can change. And just because they raised you a certain way, just because they were a certain way when you were growing up, doesn't mean they can't change. Give grace to your parents. Number four, Proverbs 20, 20 reads this. If anyone curses his father or mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. What does that mean? It means this. You have to forgive them. When we hold on to grudges, we naturally have a tongue or a thought life that curses. But Proverbs tells us if one curses his father or mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. We have to forgive them. Holding on to anger is a form of cursing, so that means that if you're holding on to anger towards your parents, in some ways, you're still a child. Fifthly, be liberated from them. Be able to say, I don't need their approval anymore. Your mother and father were the greatest influences on your life when you were a kid, no doubt. But you have to get to a point, like we talked about, leaving and cleaving. We have to get to a point where their approval no longer defines us, where we're no longer clinging to that and pursuing to their approval. After all, if you're a Christian, you have the ultimate father who already approves of you. His approval is what you need. J.D. Greer, a pastor, writes this, God's presence and approval are all you need for everlasting joy. Say that to yourself over and over again. My Father's presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Now, some of you might be thinking this, well, how do I honor my parents if they're past, if they've died, if they're gone? Well, let me just say simply, just because they're gone doesn't mean you can't honor them. You can honor their memory by speaking well of them. You can thank God for the good things they passed along to you. You can share stories about them that honor them. You can forgive the pain that they caused. You can still choose to honor your parents even when they've passed.
You know, last week we just talked, we talked about uh, leave, cleave, and become one, and I'm not going to reiterate all that, but I do want to simply echo something. If you've not left your childhood family physically and emotionally, you won't immediate, you won't lead your family well. If you haven't left, you won't lead your family well. If you haven't cleaved your spouse and become one, you won't do your immediate family well. I'm not saying you can't have a relationship with your parents. I have a relationship with my parents and my in-laws. You should, but don't be so attached that you can't function as husband, wife, child units. The last thing I want to say from Ephesians 6 is this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, Paul writes fathers there, but there's some debate about that word fathers. It can be used as parents. Parents don't provoke your children to anger. Mothers and fathers, you don't want to provoke your children to anger. What you want to do is prod them toward contrition. You want their hearts to melt over their sin and be soft and tender for the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the real trick, isn't it? How do we do that? Just a couple of practical things here. For one... Don't discipline your children in your anger. And when a child sins against you and you get angry, and we've all been there, guilty as charged, don't discipline in that moment. Take a time out for yourself. There's that attend to your heart first piece right there. Take a time out for yourself and tell God what you're feeling. Just be honest with the Lord. Pray that he will give you the peace, and then you can go and deal with the child. Secondly, don't discipline in a way that makes them angry. When you live in a family, you learn each other's buttons. You know what makes each other angry. And unfortunately, I hate to say that I'm even guilty of this. We can do it toward our own children. Don't discipline that way. When they get angry from your proper discipline, that's not on you. We're sinners raising sinners. If they get angry, you're under control. Send them to the room. Let them calm down. Talk it through. Thirdly, if you're married and with children, there's a conflict, pull the other parent into the conflict. Pull, if that's possible, pull them into the conflict. Husbands and wives, you need to be teammates in parenting. You need to have an agreed-upon game plan for how to raise your kids. What are we going to do if this happens? How are we going to address this? I can see this as a problem in our kid's life. How are we going to address this? You need to have a game plan together. If you don't see eye-to-eye on how to raise your children, that is a recipe for disaster. Get on the same game plan. Talk it through with each other. Back each other up in front of the kids. Support one another. If you disagree with your spouse on how they're parenting in that moment, don't share that in front of the kids. Share that with a parent privately. Share that with your spouse privately. Your children should see you as teammates. And finally, my wife and I have used this phrase with our own children. I'm not as consistent with it as she is, but it's a great phrase. It's this. It's, it's, it's looking at the child and saying, give me your heart. That's simple. Give me your heart. A lot of times one of us will, will even reach out and take the child's hand and say, give me your heart here. What's really going on? 
And there's something about that phrase. It doesn't always work, but there's something about that phrase that it just seems to get through the defensive barriers and help to bring resolution. So I leave those things with you just as some practical tips that I hope are helpful. You know, I said last week in reference to marriage that Jesus is both to the husband and wife a perfect model. The same is true here. Jesus exemplifies both sides of the coin. He's the perfect example of a child and the perfect example of a parent. Remember I said earlier in Luke 2.41 that we see Jesus totally submitting to his earthly parents even though he didn't have to. He knew who he was. He knew he was God. He knew who his father was and yet he completely submitted to them. He's the perfect example of the model child. Children, teenagers, do you know what it means that Jesus was your perfect model as a child? It means that when you've messed up, and you will, we all do, you don't have to be ridden with guilt. You don't have to beat yourself up over your sins and mistakes because if you're a believer in Jesus, he's already lived that perfect life for you. Do you know what the gospel is? It's an exchange. Jesus takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness because he lived the perfect life. It means we don't have to live the perfect life. We don't have to make God happy because Christ covers that. He already lived the life that makes God happy. Now that doesn't mean that we are allowed to live any way we want. For those of us who are in Christ, we should live in a way that exemplifies who we are in Jesus. You know, if, if, we, if we live to sin, if we think to ourselves, I've got Christ's righteousness, doesn't matter what I do, you know what we're doing? We're acting foreign to our nature. If we're in Christ, he's given us his righteousness, we should act in compliance with our nature. When we choose to sin, we're acting foreign to our nature. It would be like trying to go to the planet Venus and breathe the air. It's completely foreign to our lungs. Jesus is the perfect example of a child. However, parents, Jesus is the perfect example of a parent. And you might say to yourself, well, how? He didn't have any children. Correct. He did not have biological children, and yet he spent years of his life training up his disciples, loving and being devoted to his followers. You know, most biblical scholars agree that the disciples, at least many of them, were teenagers. They were young. And what do we see Jesus doing time and time again? Patiently training and guiding them. Over and over, he taught them and retaught them and retaught them. Why? Because he loved them. Because he was preparing them for what was to come. Believe it or not, Jesus loved his disciples and he loves you and he loves your children far more than you love your own kids. So look to your Savior, parents as the model for parenting. You know, everything I've been saying with point number three here, this is really where the rubber meets the road. If you want to be a godly parent, you've got to go back to the gospel again and again and again. Christ took your sin. Christ gave you his righteousness. That's the gospel. In Christ, you have all that you need to do this crazy thing we call family. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need you. 
You are our ultimate Father who's brought us into your family, the church. You love family. You created the family, and you want us to be passionate about the families you've given us. Father, help us to do this thing we call family well. Help the fathers in this room to lead their families, to take the initiative to make disciples of those in the family. Lord, help the mothers to nurture their children in the instruction of the Lord. Help husbands and wives to work together to raise gospel families. Lord, for those who have completed the raising of children, help them to realize they still have great influence. Give them wisdom on how to continue the relationship with their children with an impact to following Christ. Lord, for those who don't have children, help them see where they can to impact others with gospel influence. You've called each of us to specific paths. Help us walk those leaning on your strength. And I pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.